If you open your Bibles to Ephesians, uh, the first chapter, if you're using the church Bible, it can be found on page 976. Uh, We'll be reading the first 14 verses, which actually only come out in the Greek, it only comes out to a few sentences. Um, Paul just goes on and on and on, but it's so rich and it's so dense and it's so packed, and that's why we need to take our time looking through it. So, beginning at verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works out all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. New Year's resolutions. I don't know how many people still practice it, but often if you're in a workplace, you have to set your goals for the year. It's something that you need to shoot for. You need to have an idea of where you're going, where you're moving towards. But more than that, we sometimes do it individually so that we have some type of resolve. I will accomplish it this year. Or, if that has not quite come about, I hope that I will accomplish it this year. It's funny how sometimes resolves kind of go by the board as the year goes on. However, I can brag about my wife. She is very good at doing that. I sometimes call her stubborn, but actually she is very resolved to be able to do something. She set herself a high bar this year. In the past, it has been giving up chocolate for Lent. Now, for some people, that's impossible, such as my sister. Uh, She believes it's the fifth food category. But for many others, it's okay. Just give it up. I was surprised when we had Muslim students living with us how well they went through Ramadan, where they would not eat. They would fast all day long, all during the daylight hours. And then the evening, they would feast and party and somehow still make it to class the next morning. But they kept that up for a month. It was quite amazing. Here's the thing. Have we ever wondered what God's resolve is? What is God planning to do? And how does that intersect with our lives? 
If God is planning one thing, you know, it would do well for us to follow those plans because when we don't follow God's plans, that's usually when we run into trouble. And right here in this passage, we find exactly what God has. He has made known his will right here. Know the purpose of his will, the mystery of his will, and the counsel of his will, all from which we benefit very greatly. The first is the purpose of his will. We see that especially in verses four and five. The purpose of the Father's plan for us is that we should be holy and blameless before him. Verse four, according to the purpose of his will. Verse five. Think about this. Trying to be holy and blameless before the God who defines those terms. Sure, that's going to happen this year, right? Is that just a wish? Or is it something more? Is there substance to it? Well, let's understand whose will it is. It's our God's will. And yes, he will make it happen. You know, it's funny that in our lifetime and for some people, their will is never known until it's their last will and testament. (laughs) In other words, in their lifetime, no one has really known what they wanted to do or desired to do, but rather sometimes the circumstances have pushed them or they've been quiet about what they really enjoy. There was an old saint of the church who, when he turned 100, was asked, was there anything he wanted, especially for his birthday? And he said, I'd like a beer. A beer? He said, yeah, for a hundred years I've been wondering what a beer tastes like. Well, he had grown up in that era where Christians, those who were overtly Christians and known to be Christians, just didn't touch alcohol. And he had grown up in that era, and so he had never had it. And so from that day until the day he died, he had half a can of beer, and he enjoyed it. And then the liquor took him, and he died. (laughs) You know, it's funny how, how sometimes we never make our will known. We never... Share with people what we're really thinking. It's kind of sad because people really do want to get to know us. You see, by knowing someone's will, you actually get to know who they are and you you find out so much about them. We can find out so much about our God by knowing his will. You see, because the idea that we should be holy and blameless before him is his will. It's what he desires to accomplish in us. It's how he plans to draw us, and he plans to do this in love, not forcing his will on us, but rather steadily pushing his will. Some people say he's pushing his agenda on us. No, no. He is loving us. He is drawing us by his love that we should desire to be like him, holy and blameless. Isn't that a fascinating thought? There's so much in these two verses, verses four and five. The ESV study Bible summarizes some really choice pieces. Let me just read them. This indicates that for all eternity, the Father has had the role of leading and directing among the persons of the Trinity, even though the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal in deity and attributes. God's initiative in redeeming the believer from sin and death was not an arbitrary or whimsical decision, but something God had planned all alone in Christ before the foundation of the world. By the way, that, that word for foundation of the world 
is, is actually talking about planning a foundation. I don't know if you've ever been around contractors, 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 you know, the people who build. The most important thing in a building is the foundation. You get that wrong, whole thing will totter. I was once on a mission trip with a guy who was a bit of a perfectionist, but we were working with teens and we were doing a construction project down in Mexico. And after we had laid eight courses of block, it obviously was going slanting one way and, and it also was kind of moving a couple of different ways, forward and backward. And I could just see him just cringing. And I said to him, hey, listen, Chris, how about if we stay a little bit longer? And he said, what do you mean? I said, let's send the team back to our, our place and let's you and I stay and just do a little bit of work on this walls. And he just looked at me like, are you kidding? I said, I'll make the mud for you. You build the wall. So we didn't actually tell the team till much later, but we stripped the whole wall down and we rebuilt the whole thing. And this thing was so perfect. It was plum perfect. But the smile on Chris's face said it all. He was so delighted to be able to see that perfectly done. Our God has a smile on his face as he sees the perfect work that is going on in our lives. When he sees holiness established in our lives, when he sees patterns that we have, and he knows that this was created at the foundation of the world, the foundation that he built in the world. He chose to have this foundation made for this world, for his kingdom, for his people, for our joy. Isn't that amazing? Before the foundation of the world. Since God chose his people in his love, they can take no credit for their salvation. God was determined to have them, us, as his own. And that is God's goal. It's that we should be holy and blameless before him just as he is. This goal is not optional for Christians. It's the purpose of election. It's the reason why God has chosen us. Not because we'll make good building material. (laughs) I don't know about you all, but I look at me and I think God got a short end of the straw when he saved me. And yet, he has done so. The Father's plan, his will for us. Now, how will this be accomplished? Well, that's the mystery of God's will. Verses seven and nine. In verse five, we read that God's will is through adoption accomplished in Christ. The next two concepts in verse seven will help us understand the mechanism of this design from long ago. Throughout the book of Judges, references are made with God's exasperation and anger against his people Israel seeking other gods until he finally sells them to other kings and nations, which continued even after God had established earthly kings to assist the leading of his nations. Indeed, in Psalm 42, verse 12, excuse me, Psalm 44, verse 12, we read, you have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. How sad. And yet think about this. Every time that we sin, if we think about it as the idea that God is selling us out, that he is selling us over to sin, if that's what we desire, 
He'll give us over to our sin. He'll give us over to our waywardness. He'll give us over to the way we want to live our own lives, the way we desire to do it, the way we want to play God. He'll say, fine, go ahead. And he sells us into sin. That's why when the exodus happened from Egypt, that's why it's so important to understand that story Because it was not that God was bringing them out of slavery to Egyptians. He was bringing them out of the slavery to sin. He was buying back his people. He was doing it in such a way that they could finally see him. Why did it take 40 years to have a camp out in the desert? Because it took 40 years for them to finally see their God instead of constantly looking back at Egypt and saying, wow, we had it pretty good in Egypt. Yeah, okay, it was slavery. Yeah, we had to work seven days a week. Yeah, they beat us. Yeah, you know, hi. They forgot all of that because they thought, wow, grass is greener instead of looking and seeing their God. The God who gives steadfast love, steadfast mercy, steadfast joy. You know, those words kind of flip off our tongue. Steadfast, great word. We only use it in church. We should use it elsewhere. But have you found that constancy elsewhere? Uh, except for taxes? Steadfastness. Our God loves to be steadfast towards us because He has created a covenant with us, He has promised His steadfastness to us. Why? Because He's going to accomplish His purpose. He is going to redeem us. In in Christ, we have been redeemed. Look at this. In verse 7, it says that Christ has redeemed us. We have redemption through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. He has bought us back, but more than that, He has also made sure that our relationship with the holy God has been repaired. You see, sin is not just the breaking of the law, it's also the repudiation of the character of God. We have said we don't want God controlling us. In fact, we don't even want a relationship with us. That is the definition of sin. But what Christ has done, he has actually redeemed us. He's brought us back. He has purchased us out of a sinful way of life. And he has also healed that idea of our relationship with God. He has healed that relationship. And that is why the first mystery of God's will is that we should be adopted, not just forgiven, but adopted as his children. We are now supposed to walk in a new way, live in a new life. If you peek ahead to chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2, we see that there's a whole new way to walk. If you look in chapter 4, verse 1, we are supposed to walk in a worthy fashion. What does it mean? That we're supposed to somehow straighten up and walk straight? No, it means that we are to take on and understand the glory our God has given us in grace. He has given us such value. He gave his own lifeblood for us. Is there a greater value? Sometimes we need to remember that. I'm not worthless no matter what anyone else says. I may be feeling bad, but my God says I am valuable in his sight. And he promises, he is covenanted to be with me, 
to help me, to love me, to give me a value that will stand not only for this life, but through all of eternity. It's amazing. The second aspect of the mystery is that he has done this all in Christ, to unite all things in Christ, both in heaven and on earth. Verse 10. You see, one person was able to accomplish this massive work of salvation. Jesus Christ was the one who was able to accomplish this in his lifetime. But it gets even better. It's not just to be able to bring heaven and earth together again, but it's also to be able to bring peoples together. Look at it, for the Jew, for the Gentile. By the way, we on the Gentile side. To bring those, that nation that he took out as his special nation. Though we were outside of that, he has now provided salvation in Christ that we are included in that. That's a, that's a mystery to many people because they were saying there is absolutely no way that everyone on the face of the earth can be united. No way. And yet our God says, way. He is the one who comes. And that leads to the counsel or the resolve of God's will, verses 10 through 13. The purpose we see in the amazing role of the Holy Spirit is first in the sealing of our salvation now, verse 13, the placement of God's ownership over our lives. In ancient times, seals were used. Usually stone seals were used back in the Minoan society, but later on, about over a thousand years later, cylinder seals were starting to be used. I have a replica of a small cylinder seal. It is very tiny, but intricately carved. You can't actually see what the carving in unless you have some wax, some soft wax, and then you can roll the cylinder in it and be able to see exactly a unique pattern. Because it was a cylinder, often there was a hole that was drilled in the center of it, a little piece of string or leather put around it so you could wear it around your neck. The idea was that when you went to the marketplace and you purchased your food, they would put it in a crate, they'd tie it up with rope, and then they put wax on top and you would roll your cylinder seal across it so people would know exactly who owned it. And also, it guaranteed freshness. So if you saw that the seal was broken when it was delivered to your home, you could reject the delivery. This is what our God has done with us. You know, we often, we often blow past the idea that the Holy Spirit is in our lives, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But do you understand that God sees us and they sees his spirit upon us and he says, this is one of mine. This is my person. This is the one I purchased, that I have forgiven, that I have redeemed, that now I get to look forward to spending eternity with. Wow. The seal. The spirit's seal is securing our salvation and assuring the correctness of the content in our lives. Ephesians 2.10, for we are Christ's workmanship, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Secondly, we read in verse 14 that the Spirit is our guarantee, the deposit or down payment of our salvation now and the joys yet to come. Have you thought about that? The Spirit within you, we sometimes talk about spiritual gifts And actually the idea is the more time that we spend in fellowship with the Spirit, with our God, by His Spirit, what are the qualities that come out? We read them in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I always have a hard time with that last one. But perhaps it's because I don't wait upon the Spirit long enough. But the idea is not that these are qualities of the Spirit alone, but rather these are qualities that bubble up in our lives as we spend time with the Spirit of God. Perhaps that idea of holy and blameless is not so much difficult if we actually start living according to the Spirit, if we stay in step with the Spirit, if if we start living our lives and organizing our lives around the Spirit of God. Perhaps it's not impossible to reach God's resolve, His plan. To be clear, God's plan, verse 10, is that we would obtain an inheritance, verse 11, to be examples, trophies of His glory, verse 12. You know, it's a little bit like having a a key, you know, I, I, I was with a, a relative just recently who was given the key to a city. I've always wondered what those things are for. They're very fancy. They look really great. And I said, what good is it? And he said, well, it's supposed to be that if I go into a coffee shop down in this town, I'll get a free cup of coffee. <laughs> I said, oh, well, that's wonderful. But imagine having a key, an ornate key given to you, and later on you discover that it's actually to open the door to a mansion that is now yours. Well, to a certain extent, that's what the Spirit of God is like in our lives. I'm sorry to cheapen the Spirit of God to a key, an ornate key, but you get the idea. It's basically our surprise when we find out that the Spirit of God is opening the door to heaven, opening the door to all of the glories and the power in heaven. Galatians 5 actually talks about how we should live a life of love as Christ, but chapter four says we should live according to this by the power of the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, walking in the power of the Spirit. Yeah, we need to discover what that key is good for. So let's ask the question, who are the beneficiaries of God's will? Let me start off by saying it's the world. Now that may seem like a strange thing to start with, but consider it. When the world sees changes in our life, they finally see a pathway home. They finally see a way to live life better. They finally see that there's something that actually soothes their heart, kind of answers some of the quelling in their soul. Because they see someone else who is living a truth, a reality, that they're only starting to comprehend. You see, this is the power of the gospel. In chapter four, verse 28, there's a very strange verse that's inserted in there where it talks about walking in the spirit. And it says, let the thief steal no longer, but rather do something profitable with his hands 
so that he no longer needs to steal. That's the point of it. You see, thieves know why other thieves steal. There might be a need, or there might just be a desire to do so. But you see, when holiness starts to take a hold of our lives, suddenly there's a different desire, there's a different will in play, and suddenly the thief can leave that need knowing that God will supply the need, God will help to override the desire because there's a new desire that's even more valuable. And as a result, the thief can start doing honest labor and provide others who he can see or she can see has a need to thieve. In other words, it's not only redemptive for the individual, it's redemptive for society because we see what's driving others towards a sinful life and be able to help by God's grace. This is what can be done, a restorative, a restoration from lawlessness. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3.3, you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. This change of human hearts is the work of God in our lives, especially when people see the ultimate purpose of this soul change. Colossians 1.27, to them God chose to make known how great among non-believers are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Some of you are old enough to remember Paul and Gloria Jackson. Dr. Jackson was a wonderful physician all of his life. After he retired, it was so interesting, they drove all the way in from the burbs and they used to sit over there every week, never failing. Paul was such an upbeat person, it was always a joy just to sit down and talk with him. Have you ever found people like that in your life? You just enjoy spending time with them because they are always saying how good God is. You know, I had a difficult situation and this is what God did for me. It was wonderful, I just have to tell you more. Paul was like that all the time, so was Gloria. At Paul's funeral, uh, a man in his early 50s approached me at the end of the funeral and he said, I have a story to tell you. I said, great, I love stories. Tell me. He said, well, it was about Paul. He said, you see, Paul helped me when I was a young man. He helped me get a job. He helped me position myself well in my career, but then I decided to steal from the company and I was caught. And he said, he came to court the day that I was sentenced and convicted. And he said, they put the handcuffs on me to lead me away. And he was in the aisle and he came towards me and I thought, oh no, here's this righteous guy. He's just going to lay it on me. He's just going to beat me around the ears. And instead, Paul came up to me and he said, I love you. I'm really sorry this has happened in your life but I promise to come visit you because that's what Christ would do and I want to come in his place because you know it's God who loves you. And he hugged me and I thought, yeah, right. How could God ever love me? I have messed up my life so badly. He gave me life, I've messed it up. God has nothing to do with me anymore. He said, and then in the first week, I found out I had a visitor. It was Paul. He said, this guy is a physician. He was spending 
60, 70 hours a week with his patients, but he still made it to the prison every week, week after week, month after month, year after year. You'll never guess who he talked about. He talked about me, and he talked about Jesus Christ. And you know what? The more he talked about it, the more he talked about who Jesus was, the more I desired to know that Jesus. Excuse me. He said, I desired it because I saw the love that had transformed Paul's life, that overflowing love. And I thought, if I could have a small piece of that, I'd give my left arm for it. And Paul kept saying, it's a free gift. It's a free gift. All you have to do is say, Christ did that for me. That's it. I'm sinful. I've messed up. You got that part down. Jesus did this for me. That's all. He said, couldn't believe it was that easy. Boy, he said, I'm stubborn. Took me weeks to finally say, okay, okay. He said, we prayed together. And then guess what happened? Yeah, then we started Bible study. He got me a Bible. We started studying every week for an hour during visitation time. We studied. And you know, what was amazing was I didn't know until later on that he was visiting my wife and my kids every week as well. He was telling them how much I loved them, how sad I was that I had messed up. I couldn't believe that he turned my mess and made it sound almost good, but he was gracious that way, always was. He said, when I got out, we kept in a Bible study together. He discipled me for years. And he said, you know what? He said, after that, I started helping out in the church. I started discovering that I had a spiritual gift called teaching. I couldn't believe that. He said, why would God use me, a broken man, to be able to teach the truth, the holy truth of his word? Well, I guess I'm just a display case of his glory. But he has used me. He said, I went on to become ordained. He said, I'm now an ordained pastor in the church. And it was because of this man. His love, he just lived it out. Yeah, the world will benefit. Do I need to say that the second beneficiaries are us? I don't know that I need to. Psalm 23 is delightful. The last verse, surely, how could it fail? Surely, steadfast love and steadfast mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell. I'll be able to live in the presence of the holy God forever and ever. Not because I think it's a great idea or I'm going to make that happen, but God says he's going to make that happen in my life. Why fight this? This is a joy. A joy to be able to embrace beyond just the joy of being adopted. It's also to mature in our faith. It's to be able to understand and to grow. 
Not only so that we can share with others, that's utilitarian, no. It's that we ourselves may enjoy knowing God. I once served on a parenting panel. The last question was, what is the one thing you want to pass on to your kids? And the woman before me thankfully saved the whole day by saying, the joy I have in Jesus Christ. I looked at her and I thought, wow, that's better than anything I could have thought up. She's right. Kids know when you're joyful. You know that old proverbial picture of the family heading into church, yelling and screaming, you know, look good now, straighten up your tie, we're going to church. But joy, no, joy is something else. Joy is something that is understood, it's caught. Kids know it instinctively. Are we being hypocritical? Or do we really have that joy of the Spirit in our lives? J.B. Phillips, a saint of yesteryear, reworded 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Let me read that. The truth is that, although, of course, we lead normal human lives, the battle we're fighting is on the spiritual level. The very weapons we use are not those of human warfare, but powerful in God's warfare for the destruction of the enemy's strongholds. Our battle is to bring down every deceptive fantasy and every imposing defense that men erect against the true knowledge of God. We even fight to capture every thought until it acknowledges the authority of Christ. This is how Christ will unite all things. The truth, the evidence of grace in our lives, in the proclamation of the gospel. This is what is done. Another yesteryear, a Greek scholar writes, it is as if God has given us enough to whet our appetites for more and enough to make us certain that someday he will give us all. What's your resolve this year? I hope it falls in line with God's will then we will have a great will together, not only as individuals, but as a church together. For we will be seeking after his glory, his holiness in our lives. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we'd ask that you would make this our truth for this year, our goal for this year, our resolve, to glorify you, to honor you, to revel in this grace and love. For it is in the precious name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.